You're listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit oaksbk.church. teaching text for this morning, which is from Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain in me a willing spirit. This is the word of the Lord. morning. Morning. Well, some of you might be saying, that sounds really familiar. That sounds something like Patrick preached last week, and there's a purpose behind that. We have been in the middle of a series entitled Deconstructing Renovation, and in this series, we've been processing and trying to understand the, the, the cultural and personal phenomenon of deconstruction, but also trying to be open to Christ's work of renovation in our own lives. And so over the past weeks, we've explored what is deconstruction. We explored how Christ can meet us in the depths of our grief and actually sanctify those moments and in those moments reveal himself in new and profound ways. We talked about the truth of God and how there are often lies we have anchored in the depths of our souls about God that God wants to exchange his truth for. And then last week, Patrick did a phenomenal job highlighting that there are lies we believe about ourselves. And what he highlighted was that there's this fundamental lie at the depths of every human being is that, that I'm good or I'm good enough. And the reality being is that actually we're broken, but there is redemption. And so last week we looked at the Psalm of David, Psalm 51, to recap, if you weren't here, you're watching online, you're just joining us. In Psalm 51, David is, is repenting about this situation that happens where he took another man's wife for his own and then had that man murdered to cover it up. And in this moment of repentance, David utters the words, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not from your presence, but take your, and do not take your holy spirit from me. And it's a beautiful moment. I often pray that prayer, and, and that moment in David's life has, has, has powerful ramifications for what we believe about redemption, that even the darkest, worst parts of human experience can be redeemed by a God who is both just and merciful, who both embodies grace and truth. But you wouldn't be blamed If after last week's sermon you asked, what now? There's a moment of redemption. The prayer's been prayed. I I came before God and and laid down the lie that I am good and, and accepted the truth that I am broken and in need of redemption and resurrection. And again, you'd be you'd be quite fair in asking what now. See, often we frame the Christian life as moments. I have my salvation or conversion 
moment, and we spend so much time focusing on those big moments, those mountaintop moments, those radical, transformative moments. Maybe you have some of them. Maybe you remember a time in a service like this where you came and you prayed, or, or you had an encounter and a conversation with a friend that radically transformed your view of self and God, but we can get so caught up in talking about these moments, we forget to ask what's next. What happens after the moment? What happens after the prayer? What happens after the repentance? And see, we'd be kind of wrong in saying that I was saved. Because that's true, you are saved. But when you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, when you believe the gospel of God that Jesus is indeed Lord of all and that he rules and reigns and you pledge your loyalty to him and his kingdom, There is a moment there that happens that God works his salvific power on our lives, gifts us with the gift of the Holy Spirit, and brings us to life. But the Christian life is not just that moment. See, the witness of the scriptures and and Christian history has taught us that we're not just saved, we are also being saved. That the Christian life can be, can be broken down into three kind of phases. That a moment of salvation where you were saved, the final powerful act of Jesus on the cross, the powerful act of his resurrection and ascension in which he sits seated at the right hand of God the Father. And he invites us into the newness of life by the power of the Spirit. We were saved. But you're also being saved. That Christ is still at work through his spirit saving you. This is what theologians would call sanctification. The the process of becoming holy. The process of becoming and being formed into the image of Christ. This is the process we are in. This is the in-between time. This is the messy middle. And so what we often obsess and we often try to, we try to re- make those moments again, we often think we have to have successive moments of salvation. What we just have to remember is you were saved, but you are being saved. And that's most of the Christian life, is the moving from the moment of redemption to living out your redemption. And then with the hope that we will be saved, future tense, in which Jesus comes and restores all things and brings about the fullness of his kingdom. Again, to use theological language, maybe for those of you, you're you're new to Christianity and when these words get thrown around, you're like, what do they mean? We were saved, we were justified. That means we we were declared right before God by Christ. We're being sanctified, we're being saved, we're being formed into the image of the Son and we will be glorified. Or when Christ comes in the fullness of his kingdom, we will experience the fullness of what it means to be in the image of Christ. But there's a paradox here, and it's experiential, so we all know it. If you've been a Christian for any number of years, there's been a moment of tension, and maybe a moment of tension you haven't really unpacked, is that you said you were saved, but as a saved person who believes in the gospel and, who, and who's walking with Jesus, you still do stuff that your old you used to do. So how can I have a new heart and still believe the old lies? How do I have a new right spirit within me and yet fail and give in to temptation and sin and brokenness? 
This is the paradox of redemption. That how do we live with new hearts in old flesh? How do we live as people who are filled with the Spirit of God and yet tempted to embrace our brokenness and sin? This is the paradox of redemption. Paul writes in his letter to the Galatians, Live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the spirit, and what the spirit desires is opposed to the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you want. Paul is writing to the Galatians who are, who are dealing with a lot as a community, and, and what he's writing to them, he's, he's saying, taking a moment to say, hey, listen, there's the spirit. The, the power and presence of God working in your life, but there's this thing called the flesh. And now, when we hear the word flesh, I don't want you to think of the word body. The, the, the word Paul uses here in Greek is the word sarx. It means flesh. There's another Greek word for body, like our physical being. So I don't want you to think that your body is bad and your body is the source of what's, what's ailing you. No, 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 your body is good. It's actually created and made and formed by God. But there's this, Paul's trying to get the spiritual reality. He's trying to get the, the piece of the human condition we all know to be true is that we, are, we have a propensity for selfishness and self-destruction. And so Paul says, this part of you, this, this aspect of your life, that thing is at war with the Spirit of God working inside you. And there's this paradox, there's this tension that you are saved but still wrestling with sin. The Protestant reformer Martin Luther, he had a Latin phrase for this. He said, we are simul justice et peccator. We are simultaneously saints and sinners. We are both people who are radically transformed by God and yet wrestle with this piece of our human condition that rears its ugly head time and time again. To better understand this, Augustine, St. Augustine, he says this, but if God has regard to him and inspires him with faith in God's help, and the spirit of God begins to work in him, then the mightier power of love strives against the power of the flesh. And although there is still in the man's own nature a power that fights against him, and this is the key part, for his disease is not completely cured, yet he lives the life of the just by faith and lives in righteousness so far as he does not yield to evil but conquers it by the love of holiness. This is the third state of man. Augustine has this paradigm where there's different states of the human condition. There's the fallen, there's a pre-fallen state that Adam and Eve were in. There's the fallen state of man. And then there's this third state, the, the state, if you're a believer and you have called Christ your Lord, that we're in. That we are, have the, the power and, and the love of God has so richly dwelt in us that now we have a desire to do what is right, but we are not completely cured. C.S. Lewis, he wrote a book, series of books called the Space Trilogy, and, and he has this beautiful designation for, for, for people struggling with sin. He, he calls them the bent ones. Notice he doesn't say the broken ones. When something's bent, it can be realigned. And so as humans, we, though we're saved and redeemed by Christ, though God is working new and powerful things in us, we're, we're still bent. We still have this propensity and this desire to do what we want to do. And so how do we live out the paradox? 
How do we live in light of this reality? How do we live in the tension between, I want to serve God and serve him only, but I want to do for myself. And this is what we're going to talk about today. This is what we're going to term walking with a limp. I, you know, I, I, I remember um, playing sports in high school. Um, I, I, I don't say I was, any, I was any good at them or... Or I was, you know, I was an athlete by any stretch of the imagination. I liked my believe myself to be, but I was tall for my age, and so I used to make it to the team. And I remember, foolishly, one day, um, I'm fracturing my ankle at a basketball camp. And um, it was like a hairline fracture on the ankle. And, you know, being me, they said, hey, Ryan, you can stay and try to play, which was terrible advice. But I was 13, young and dumb, so I was going to say yes. Or you can go home and, you know, get treatment. And, of course, I don't want to leave my friends behind. So I said, bind this up as tight as you can. I'm going to play. And so I could play with unbearable pain, but I could play. I could, I could suit up. I would tie my sneaker as tight as I can, put, a, put, one, or, put one or two braces on it, and I could, I could move down the court. I, I could participate. I, I, I could keep up, but there was like a limp to my run. There was a, there was a hesitancy in my step, and, and that's the Christian life, is that we can run, we can play, we, we're in the game, we want to follow Christ, but there's this hesitancy, there's this limp, and that limp is that thing called the flesh. And so if we're supposed to walk with a limp, that means when, when we say walk, we, we want to think about forward momentum. If we're trying to walk and press on towards the goal to win the prize which Christ has called us heavenward, if we're trying to walk with a limp, how... How do we do so without letting the limp cripple us? And this is what we're going to talk about today. If you have Bibles, I encourage you to follow on or follow along on the screen. Paul provides us a paradigm in his, in his letter to the Colossians. He says this, So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever in you is earthly, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. These are the ways you also once followed when you were living that life. But now you must get rid of all such things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourselves with the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge according to the image of its creator. In that renewal, there is no Greek and Jew, no circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. There are two important phrases from that paragraph in which Paul's writing to the church in Colossae. He, he, says, he says to seek and to put to death. To seek after, to desire, to search after, and to literally put to physical death something. 
And so what Paul is giving the Colossians is a framework for living the Christian life, that living the Christian life both involves putting to death that which wars against our soul, that which wars against the will and way of God, that which deviates us from the good way Jesus is calling us to and, and actually proceeds us down the path of death. Put that thing to death. Now, when I say this, this is not a, a lot of people call this, when they read this verse, they think this is a call to some sort of self-erasure. That by becoming a Christian, I lose all sense of who I am. I lose all sense of identity. I become this amorphous blob called a Christian. That's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying, actually, Christ has come to take you, who you are, and, and who God has created you to be, and actually sanctify and glorify that piece, because that piece of you is the beauty of the image of God. But there is another part of you that needs to die. And that sounds quite harsh, but it seems to be the language that we can only do to deal with that thing that wages war against us, that limp. How do, we, how do we not let that limp cripple us? How do we keep going? How do we keep moving? Well, Paul's advice is that something has to be put to death. But he gives another part of the paradigm. paradigm. Seek that, those things which are above this is, again, this is not a call to get lost in spiritual ponderings and to become, you know, so, so heaven-focused, you're no earthly good. That's not what Paul is saying. But Paul is saying, hey, listen, there's an orientation a Christian's life should have. A, a Christian's life should be oriented towards the good. When I use the word the good, the good is another term for God because God is the good. There's, there's an understanding of God we have that God is himself. He, he doesn't have properties. He is those things. When we say God just doesn't possess the good, he is the good. God just doesn't possess the truth. He is the truth. God doesn't possess beauty. He is beauty. And so anything good, anything lovely, anything true emanates from God. And so that means my life has to be oriented away from those things that are not good and oriented toward that which is good which is God. And so the Christian life is one of constant dying to self and constantly limping towards the good. It's that daily struggle, that daily limp, that, that daily walk we do. We drag our feet behind us, pressing on towards the goal to win the prize, which Christ has called us heavenward, to, to orient ourselves and to fixate ourselves on that which is good, which is God, in whom we see Jesus. So to walk with a limp requires two things. It requires the, the dying and the seeking. In the story of Genesis, there's the story, Genesis 4, there's a story of Cain and Abel. And when you read the Genesis account, Cain, the Cain and Abel story is like a retelling of the Garden of Eden story. There's another moment of choice, another tempter, and another warning from God. And this is this whole story of Cain and Abel, a story about two brothers, one who hates the other, has a, has a central moment which gives the story its character and flavor. It's this. It says, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. God comes to Cain in this moment of decision, and he says, hey, listen, if you do well, you will be accepted. We have to remember in the story that, 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 that Abel, his brother, his sacrifice was, 
was honored by God when Cain's wasn't. And so Cain is feeling this intense jealousy, this hatred toward his brother, a, a hatred that would eventually lead him to murder. But God comes at this moment of decision. He says, hey, listen, Cain, there's two choices in front of you. You can do well. You can, you can do what is right. You can pursue the good. Or if you're not careful, there's this thing crouching at your door. And it's interesting because in this verse, sin gets personified. Oftentimes, we think sin as only the things I do with my actions that are wrong or against God's word or, 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 or his, or, or those things that I do that do violence to myself and to others. But, but sin is not only an action. Sin in this verse seems to be some external force, the, the force of death that threatens to consume me, that desires me, that wants to eliminate me, that wants to take me down with it. Sin is characterized like an animal, like a beast, a monster, creeping at the door of the heart, desiring to devour you. But God says, you must master it. It's a tall order, and sadly we see Cain fail, but God is inviting Cain to take up his vocation. Remember, Adam and Eve were called to what? Subdue the earth. They were, they were called to rule and reign on God's behalf. They were to be his, his vice princes and princesses, kings and queens, through which God ruled and reigned his just rule on the earth. And so humans still have the capacity to rule and reign. We still have the capacity to, to steward God's good creation well, to choose the good. But there's this thing, there's this beast that needs to be mastered in order to do so. And the question, the tension we live in is, will we master sin? Will we, will we dominate the beast that's waiting at the door of our hearts? Or will we, we be mastered by it? And when we walk in a limp, Walk with a limp. This is our daily choice. Every day, this limp, this, this thing, what Paul describes as a thorn in his side, this thing that, that, that keeps us from running all the way, that, that, that keeps us thinking about those old lies we used to believe, that, that keeps us returning to those patterns of behavior that are self-destructive and that harm others. That thing, that thing, that part of the limp that, that keeps us moving like this, it's that thing. That God is saying, hey, listen, it doesn't have to cripple you. There's, there's an opportunity to master it. There's an opportunity to conquer it so that you can continue moving toward and moving toward God and all his goodness through the power of the spirit. But how? How do you master it? How do you keep on walking when the limp is threatening to cripple you? How do you keep up the energy? How do you keep up the momentum? How do you keep moving when everything in you is telling me, let me just sit down and nurse this thing a little bit. Let, let me just give in once. Let me, let me just sit down and rest once. Let, let me engage that thing just one more time and then I'll be over it. How, how do you resist that? And well, it's in God's speech. He says, if you do well. In other words, a lot of times in, 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 in Christian tradition, we, we often talk a lot about the things you shouldn't be doing, right? And so, like me, I grew up in church, okay? And when I grew up in church, often the sermons sounded a lot like, here's the laundry list, just don't do those things, and you'll be holy by Friday, okay? Like, just, just, just stick to the list, stick to the script, right? Um, here's all the things you shouldn't be doing, the places you shouldn't be going, here's the itinerary, you know? Here's the blocks you don't go down. Here's the people you don't hang with. Here's the, here's the things you don't drink. Here's the things you don't do, and, and that's holiness. 
Thumbs up. But any of you, just experientially, how effectual has that been? Yeah, thank you. I thought so. I was just, you know, I was, you know, and because we realize that you need more than just like the, I have to, obsessing about dominating your sin. Like, it's ironic that people who have been exposed to the grandeur and goodness of God have obsessed so much about sin. That often we talk more about the evil in, in ourselves, the evil we perceive in the world, and we talk about the goodness and glory of God we claim to worship. So if that doesn't work, if, if obsessing over every little thing I should and shouldn't be doing isn't doing the trick, if that's not helping me master sin, then what does? God says it to Cain. Do well. Pursue the good. Paul says this in Philippians. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence and if there's anything worthy of praise, think about those things. Knows the answer to mastering sin, to, to dominating that thing, to, to walking with the limp, is not obsessing over the limp, but keeping our eyes fixated on the destination. That the, the, the power of God, we really experience the power of God, not when we're, we're, we're navel-gazing, eyes down, looking at the things we've done wrong, or the things we shouldn't be doing, or the things we may want to do, but we know we shouldn't do. No, it's actually when we fixate on the good, when we fixate on God, when we fixate on his glory and majesty, when we fixate on anything that leads us to God. What, what, what Paul is doing here, he's using actually Greek ethical categories. So he's saying, hey, listen, Listen, Philippians, I know, I know you're from Greek society, so I, I'm going to give you one. Anything that's good in your society, focus on that thing. Anything that's worthy of praise, anything that's commendable, anything that, like, you know, that you go, and you go and see a beautiful sunset, and you're like, oh, man, this is so beautiful. Wow, this inspires me to worship and praise my creator. Yeah, focus on those things. Because it's through those things, that it's through what is good and true and beautiful that when we fo- keep our focus and we're fixated on those things, that actually that's what carries us. And pretty soon we stop looking at the limp and we just start to walk. And we forget that, you know what, and I'm not overly obsessing over every little thing I did and didn't do, but I'm fixated on the good. I'm fixated on what's true. I'm fixated on what's beautiful. And because I am, I walk towards that thing. And the more I walk towards that, the further I get from the thing that I used to be. This is what it means to walk with the limp. To, to leave behind what was and limp ever on towards what is good and true and beautiful. In other words, pursuing the good, to use Paul's language from earlier, is walking with the Spirit. You want to, people say, like, what does it mean to walk with the Spirit? Well, it means to chase the good, to chase the beautiful in the world, to chase those things which draw you closer to your Creator. But if I were to end the message here, this would be a, actually a pretty bleak message because the reality is we all know that this is difficult. That as much as we say we want to pursue the good, when Monday comes around, let's all be honest. So like how then do we actually pursue the good? Like how then do we actually put to death the flesh that wars against the spirit? Like what's the, what's the thing that motivates us? What's the thing that empowers us to do that? Because if it was just us, it wouldn't work out. 
In other words, walking with a limp, pursuing the good, dying to self, mastering sin, is not a form of like Christian self-help. That I'm gonna do these set of things and my life's gonna turn out great. Because actually, the witness of scripture seems to be that we need some other agent. We need some other aid to do these things. And actually what Paul would go on to say, it's Christ working out the power to will and to do. That sanctification, that word we brought up earlier, is both something we do, we're called to it, we're called to walk and pursue God and and to pursue holiness and to pursue the good and die to self and do all those things, but it's not just a human work. It's also a divine work. That there's a condition, if we go back all the way to the passage in Colossians, There's a conditional clause that we could easily skip over, and it's this. So, if you have been raised with Christ, dot, 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 dot. In other words, our capacity to pursue the good, our capacity to master sin, our capacity to walk with a limp is predicated on being raised with Christ. That you have not been left on your own to do this work, but actually all the animating energy you need to continue to walk with the limp, to continue to chase after what is good and lovely and pure, all of that is found in Christ and by the power of the Spirit. See, on the cross, Christ did what Cain couldn't do. Christ mastered death. He mastered sin. The beast crouching at his door, the beast that was with him in the garden that said, there's an easier way. The beast that was with him in the desert and says, if, you are hung, if you're hungry, just make these stony stones into bread. That beast, Christ mastered on the cross. He, matter of fact, in one of Paul's letters, he says he made a mockery of it. He overthrew it. He overcame it. In in, in, in medieval theology, there's these beautiful pictures of what's called the harrowing of hell, where Christ descends into the depths of hell, and he has keys with him, and he's leading a train of captives because sin and death no longer have power. Because of what Christ did on the cross, so I see what Cain couldn't do, Christ did. And because of what Christ did, we can do what Cain failed to do. Christ is the animating energy we need. Christ, because of his, what he did on that cross, because of that beautiful exchange, because of his death and his resurrection and the gift of the Spirit, we actually have the energy and power we need to pursue the good and master sin. Because Christ did it first, we too do it after him because we are being conformed into him, his image. And a lot of times when you're coming to this church and you're new, you know, we, we put a lot of emphasis here on prayer and uh, uh, you know, walking and moving in the spirit and being sensitive to the spirit. There's a reason for that. It's not because we want to get like spiritual heebie-jeebies and feel good about ourselves. It's because if you don't believe in the power of the spirit, you actually don't have access to the life-giving power that is necessary for your transformation. If, if your Christianity has up until this point been a set of doctrines you've checked off, it's good to have those doctrines in place. It's good to know what you believe. But without the life-animating energy of the spirit, it's lifeless. Paul writes, the law kills, the spirit gives life. So if you need to start pursuing the good, if you want to stop struggling with that thing, maybe the thing you need to do those things is not another book, 
is not another podcast, is not showing up here more, as much as we'd love to see you here more. Maybe it's walking with the Spirit. Why? Because Paul said earlier, walk with the Spirit and you will not, what? Gratify the desires of the flesh. Maybe what you need is an encounter with the Holy Spirit. Here's the good news. The Holy Spirit is not for the spiritual elite. It's not for those who've had have done all the right things, said all the right things, and now have graduated, and they get, they, you get the Holy Spirit. There's a secret class we all go to. Um, no, actually, what we believe as Christians is that upon your confession of Jesus' lordship, you receive the gift of the Spirit. Now, here's the thing. A lot of times in church, you know, you hear people praying, say, Holy Spirit, come, Holy Spirit, show up. And that's helpful language, I think, sometimes in worship, but I think what it leads people to believe, who are, who, all of us who are sitting here, sometimes we get confused and we think that the spirit is something out there I need to possess. But actually, no, the, the spirit's here. So if you're not experiencing him, it's not because he's absent. It's because you just haven't opened your eyes to it. And so maybe the prayers we're praying during praying and worship, not Holy Spirit, come, but Holy Spirit, help me see you acting and moving and working in the world right now because maybe it's not you, it's me. And I'm a little blind to your movement. And I'm a little blind to, to, to what you're doing in the world. Maybe... You need to open my eyes to see you. Maybe I have some scales that need to fall away so I can perceive what you're doing and avail of my, yourself of my power, of your power. And band, you want to come join me because we're going to pray in a moment. Walking with a limp is the act of walking with the Spirit, walking with the Spirit. It's the act of walking alongside the Spirit of Jesus through life. And as we do so, we grow closer to the good and we're able to master those things that used to master us. But, again, this is not just about you. Though I want your freedom and transformation, there's actually something profound that happens when you begin to walk with the Spirit. There's something profound that happens when you begin to, 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 to die to self and pursue the good. What begins to happen? Well, the very limp that used to hamper you actually becomes a place of healing for others. The, the, your story, the story that's full of its ups and downs, hurt, pain, loss, mistakes, tragic decisions, that thing that used to hamper you and used to keep you rooted to the ground, unable to move forward, actually, as you begin to walk with the Spirit, becomes a source of healing for others. That as you walk with the limp, the hope is others begin to follow. And others begin to realize as they encounter Jesus through you that the limp is only a temporary setback and not an eternal curse. That as I begin to walk with this limp, other people follow behind me. We become what Henry Nouwen calls wounded healers. That in our own woundedness, we can become a source of life for others. As we limp along, as we wrestle with sin, as we try our best to pursue the good, aided by the Spirit, our journey, our limping, is an invitation for others to limp along with us. And I know the heart of this church is that we, would, we gather here, we get encouraged, we pray, we remember our story, we remember that we are people not shaped by the in world outside ourselves, we're actually people shaped by the story of Jesus, and, but the implication is that after we gather here, we go back out into the world, and the whole goal of that is as you're limping in your job and limping at home and limping with the family member and limping in the train station, and as you limp around, that that woundedness that used to keep you rooted now becomes a life-giving spring for others to drink from. And as graphic as and weird as that image sounds, 
we have to remember we, re we worship a savior who still has his wounds in his palms and his side and his feet. And that those wounds are life-giving for us. It's actually why when we come to the Lord's table, we are still benefiting from the power of his wounds. And so my encouragement to you, next week you're like, Brian, so how do I do this Monday? That's for next Sunday. You gotta come back. Um, and Lindsay's gonna do an incredible, jo incredible job leading us through that and talking about the practical. And like, okay, so like, how, this is the theory. How do I actually walk with a limp? She's got you. Don't worry about it. It's gonna be great. But allow me to pray for you. And um, before I do, um, I wanna encourage you. If you're hearing all this and you're like, this all seems impossible, I wanna encourage you that yeah, don't worry you feel that way. Denying those things you feel are so intrinsic to you is really difficult. Pursuing the good when every part of you wants to just do just what you want is difficult. But the promise of the Christian hope is Christ came and became as we are so we might become what he is. That Christ took on the frailty of, of, of our humanity so we could take on the glory of his redemption. And so if you find this difficult and hard, and you're like, man, I just don't know what to do with this, you're in the right company. Because that has, that's what every Christian has felt for the past 2,000 years. It's actually, I think, one of the biggest indicators that Christianity is true. Because it's not like Christianity, and G.K. Chesterton says something along the same lines, as this, but it's not like Christianity, like someone read the book, read the Bible, mastered all the things. Like, guys, I did it. I completed Christianity. I did it. I'm done. I won. Because people for thousands of years have struggled to live up to Jesus' teachings. Because for people thousands of years have failed in loving their neighbors and praying for those who persecute them. It's because for thousands of years people have misinterpreted and misaligned themselves with the teaching of Jesus that I actually think if it's that hard, there must be something to it. Because if it was easy and attainable, it must have been something a human could have come up with. But since it seems like every human fails at it, I might need something more than just myself. Why don't you stand with me as I pray for you? And then we're going to worship and respond and take the Lord's Supper together. Father, the moment we said yes to you, we didn't stop at the moment. We didn't freeze frame and freeze for a moment in time. We got invited onto a journey. And that journey looks like walking with a limp. It looks like pursuing what is good and with the power of your spirit, trying to put to death that beast, that monster, that thing that lingers and desires to devour us. We're so thankful that you didn't just give us a set of ethical teachings or moral teachings, God, but you actually gave us a person, the spirit, your spirit, God, to inhabit and dwell within us, to work within us, to will and to do. So we avail ourselves of you, Holy Spirit. Help us to walk with you. Because everything I, I, I preach just now is for nothing if we do not have the animating, life-giving, resurrective power of the Spirit working and acting and moving in us. So Holy Spirit, meet some people today. Open their eyes to see that you never went anywhere. And that your power is available and on offer for all those who believe. In Jesus' name. Amen.